Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome into Soccer Morning here on Backheel.com. Hope you had a very nice, relaxing weekend watching soccer from around the world. There was a ton of things happening this weekend. We had derby matches. We had a continental championship. We had a couple of U.S. friendlies, both for the men and for the women. There are games on top of games to discuss. Big show for you today. Let's outline our guest singular. Jeff Kasu from Equalizer Soccer and NBC Sports will join us. In just a little while at 10.30 Eastern to discuss the USA women's loss in Lorient, France. France? Lorient, France. I guess it's hard to switch up the... uh, We're going to talk about the U.S. women losing in France to France and uh, what that might mean for them moving forward. Remember, Hope Solo is out uh, with that suspension and the U.S. women taking their lumps a bit in Europe. Uh, before that, we can do headlines. Let's certainly jump into those. And uh, and after headlines, we'll have plenty of time to talk to you, perhaps about the U.S. men and their performance in in Carson, California against Panama. That leads the headlines today. The United States men's national team beating Panama 2-0. Goals from Michael Bradley, a direct goal from a corner in Olympico, and a goal from Clint Dempsey. Very nice run by Giassi's artist to set up Clint for the second tally, the U.S. saw it out in the second half, didn't shut down or have those issues conceding goals in the second half. Of course, Panama is not Chile. We know that the competition matters. Uh, does this mean anything for Jurgen Klinsmann? Scrapping the 3-5-2? Or was that 45 minutes that we saw down in Chile just a, uh, just a, a one-off experiment? What, what What's the situation there? I don't think anybody quite has the grasp. We do have some nice performances out of the game against Panama that we can discuss a little bit later on. I mentioned the U.S. women losing to France in Lorient 2-0. Uh, I, speaking of, of of interesting goals, uh, Michael Bradley's Olympico, you had France scoring on what was what looked to be a cross. Uh, of course, Harris had no chance on that goal, and the U.S. women uh, fall uh, in Europe. Cote d'Ivoire is your African Cup of Nations champions. They beat Ghana on penalties, a, a stunning Stunning penalty uh, round there for the African Championship. It was going on right around the same time as the U.S. men were playing, so it was very difficult to keep an eye on both. But you had a, a dramatic end with Bubakar Barry, the goalkeeper for Cote d'Ivoire, not only saving a, a penalty from his opposite number, but also stepping up and hitting the game-winning penalty after some dramatics, after going down with... He acted like his leg was hurt. I didn't quite understand what he, he made a diving save and his leg hurts. I, I don't quite understand what was going on there. If you watched any of that on BN Sport, by the way, <laughs> Trevor Hayward's favorite people broadcasting that game, quite the uh, quite the celebration uh, in the aftermath of that in Equatorial Guinea, where that tournament was held. Uh, yeah, lots of yelling and screaming on that broadcast uh, in, that, in that game. Uh, in the, in those derby matches I mentioned, a big one in England, Spurs beating Arsenal 2-1. Harry Kane with two goals. This is continuing the, the rocket ride that is Harry Kane and at Spurs is continuing. Recently signed a brand new contract, and now he scores the goals that beat Arsenal in the North London derby. Allow Spurs to jump over the uh to jump over their rivals in the table. Let me just pull up the table right now cuz I haven't checked it this morning. 
But I do know that that put uh, put Tottenham put that win for Tottenham. Excuse me, put them one point ahead of Arsenal. Tottenham now in fifth place. Arsenal in sixth. The other match you had. This was not a derby match, obviously, but the other match of note in England. A surprising result: Hull City getting a one-one draw with Man City at the Etihad. Man City cannot wait for Yaya Toure to return from Africa after winning a championship. They need him desperately, and their home form is suffering. We can talk about that perhaps uh, as we move forward this week. Neymar and Messi in an incredible form as Barcelona beats Belbao. Not a derby there, but a big match in Spain. 4-1 for uh, Barcelona in that match. Messi's on fire. If there was any chance, remember that a year and a half ago we started talking about Messi uh, dealing with some injuries, perhaps his he was fading just a bit. No, he's fine. Now, the other side of the usual dichotomy that is Spain is Real Madrid and Cristiano Ronaldo. They got worked by Atletico Madrid in in the Madrid derby. Cristiano Ronaldo voted worst player on the field among uh, in a poll after the game. I can't remember who ran the poll. I did read that this morning. And in after in the aftermath of that four nothing loss, in which he was voted the worst player on the field. This was, oh, it was by Marco. There you go. He went and had a party afterwards because he just turned 30 years old. Lots of pictures floating out in the Spanish media of Cristiano Ronaldo partying it up in Spain after getting destroyed by Atletico Madrid and his agent having to defend him. Of course he was crushed by the loss. Of course he was sad. He still had his party. I don't understand why this is a thing. Apparently, you can't have a bad day at work and then go have a party afterwards. Why is this a big deal? Is he supposed to be moping the entire day because his team lost a match? Again, this is his job. I know we think of football as life, but it's his job. It's his day job. You turn 30, go celebrate. Blow it out a little bit. Now, don't do anything that's going to hurt your performance the next time around. And maybe his mind was on his party, which is why he was one of the worst players on the field apparently, but he can still go and have a good time and cut loose uh, when you turn 30. Trust me, when you t- when turning 30 is a depressing moment. You might as well uh, you might as well party it up when you can. In more troubling news, a couple of we, we had three years ago, we had the Port Said incident in, in, in Egypt that shut down the Egyptian League. Obviously, that was part a uh, precursor to the Egyptian Revolution. We've it's happened again uh, outside of Cairo. At a match there, uh, league play has been suspended in re- as a result of 25 people dying in a riot in Egypt. Uh, it just would love to be able to get away from this. Uh, clearly, Egypt has yet to completely uh, figure itself out over the course of the last couple of years with all the political upheaval. And now you have, again, football being touched by some uh, violence, which is no, uh, never, good, uh, never a good thing. And again, uh, 25 people passing away as a result of these riots, and now the league has been suspended. All right, let's uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to open, open up the phone lines early today. It's Monday. We're all getting going here. i got to clean the sleep out of my eyes. Let's talk about the U.S. men's national team against Panama. Let's talk about some of these derby matches. When we come back, Soccer Morning, backheel.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning. 
Hope yours is fine. Nice. I mean, Monday mornings are never good. Monday mornings are never easy. You have to wake up after having a weekend, not having to go to work. If you are on that kind of schedule, I know plenty of people out there working weekends, working odd schedules, but for the majority of us, well, the majority of, yeah, the majority of us getting up on Monday is tough. And we have a USA game from yesterday to discuss. 347-756-6276 is the phone number if you want to jump in. Talk about the U.S. men, the U.S. women, any of these games uh, from Europe that certainly matter, at least in terms of the English Premier League and La Liga. There is uh, there's the trouble in Egypt. I'm not sure I can provide any additional context uh, to that incident. It's just another sad chapter in the way that uh, violence and, and, and soccer has mixed in that country. And again, the league has been suspended for the time being. Hopefully it's not a protracted shutting down of the league. Although when you have these continue, when you, when you have these incidents, look, one in a decade is enough to have it happen again. Whatever the, whatever the, the casualty number is to have it happen again is obviously troubling. When you have clashes with police and people are dying, there's something going on that need to, needs to be fixed. A reminder here, Jeff Kasuf. From Equalizer Soccer will join us at 10.30 Eastern. Talk about the U.S. women. In the meantime, let's let's flesh out the U.S. men. Let's talk about what they did yesterday, what they did right, what they did wrong against Panama on that 2-0 win in Carson, California. And I, I know that around here we seem to have a fixation on Jurgen Klinsmann, but so much of what's going on with the U.S. men's national team falls to him. When it goes well, it's him. When it doesn't go well, it's fitness or it's a... Uh, an issue of concentration, or it's an issue of culture. Supermarkets matter, guys. Now, yesterday, the U.S. men came out in a 4-3-2-1 uh, put out there by Jurgen Klinsmann. No, is that right? 4-2-3-1. Apologies. And Clint Dempsey sitting behind Josie Altidore. Get my, let me get my numbers, my nomenclature right, because otherwise, what's the point? We can't talk about, we can't talk about a game without knowing the formation, guys. Thought uh, clearly the the stars of the day. Now, the Michael Bradley was fantastic in the middle of the park, doing what Michael Bradley does. Now, at various points, you heard Taylor Twelman point out that he and and mixed this group need to find an understanding if they're going to play together. That there was a little bit of uh, concern over both of them pushing up into the attack and leading leaving gaps behind. But for the most part, I think Michael Bradley was perfect. There are some other uh, some other players worth pointing out. But let's uh, talk to Mark Fishkin from Seeing Red here on Backhill.com. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you? Happy Monday. Happy Monday, sir. What's going on in your world? Oh, so much. But, you know, I want to talk about yesterday's match. Um, you know, I thought it was a fine kind of remedial <laughs> win for the United States. I mean, they obviously needed to have an opponent that they could play very well against, and I guess Panama was the, was the sacrificial lamb. Panama certainly could have scored once or kind of twice when Jurgen's defense kind of let him down. I thought it was a fair result. There were there were two very good goals. There was great passing combinations. I don't think anyone should get too high and say everything's fixed now. We're ready to go because no. this um, spring schedule of friendlies is going to uh, be very, very difficult. And the whole goal is to get them ready, obviously, for Gold Cup in July. Well, I mean, you, you, again, good goals, but you know, yeah, sure, fine. That, that's kind of what I the, the, the reaction <laughs> I took. Yeah, sure, fine. I, I'm with you on that. It is a yeah, sure, fine. Performance. I think what typically what do we do in January, Mark? We're not necessarily looking for 
some sort of some kind of cohesive team output that indicates something good is coming down the pike because the the this the roster is made up usually of French guys or, or new introductions. We're usually focused on individual performances. Guys who we think maybe he can work into the team down the road on a more consistent basis. And you got a couple of those. I mean, Miguel Ibarra got some attention. You had Giassi Zardis, who was probably, other than Michael Bradley, one of the best American players. Uh very, know. very impressed by Zardis yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he he definitely raised his stock and you know for later and um, yeah, playing at home obviously uh, adds to his comfort level, but I'm I'm hoping, and I think all U.S. fans should hope that he can uh, do a little more of that, especially at a time when Josie, you know, continues to be Josie. Um, Zardis adds speed and size and strength, and finally field vision uh, and that unbelievable uh, ball to Dempsey. So I, I, you know. If you want to take anything away from this game, it was the emergence of Sardis, and I guess that's the story. You you, you have issues with Josie's performance yesterday? Yeah, you know, I mean, again, just fine. He was in the right place on Bradley's Olympico. He was right there, and if the ball was a, an inch away, he would have uh, picked up yet another goal. I thought it was, again, yeah, fine, sure, next. <laughs> I mean, that, that was a better for me. Uh, all right, it's interesting. I didn't. I I had the uh, I had the responsibility of doing player ratings for ESPN FC yesterday. Not usually something I do. But I try mm-hmm. to, you know, try to take it very seriously. I'm charting the game. I'm watching for individual moments. Although you can't just focus on one or two things a player does in the course of a 70 minute or 90 minute performance. You need to look over the course of the entire game. I gave Josie. What did you give him? I gave Josie Altador a seven. I thought Josie Altador. Look, I know his job is is nominally to score goals as a striker. But I thought he worked really hard. I thought he was tracking back well and contributing defensively. I thought he held up the ball well. I thought he had a couple of good flick-on uh, type passing movements. I thought he was pretty good. I thought he was. I thought he was. You know what you need him to be in the U.S. setup. Who who got the lowest rating for you on the day? Uh, Chris Wondolowski got the lowest, lowest yeah. rating for me. Uh, just yeah. not, I, I don't know what his deal was yesterday. He, speaking of waking up on Monday and having a bad, he woke up on Sunday and had a bad day. <laughs> really, really cranky Chris Wondolowski, which I don't mind the feistiness, but when you whiff on what was the best cross of the day from Rex Shea, I, I you know, and, and you're really not doing much else. I, look, I know the guy moves a lot, but other than that, he wasn't very good. And, you know, maybe that's unfair. He only played about 23, 24 minutes, I think, in the game. Um, of the other players, I, I, I'm, I'm, I gave both outside backs fours. I didn't think Yedlin or Shea were very good. Yeah, I, I would agree. Although Shea did, again, you're looking 90 minutes, uh, you know, without that keen critical eye. I'm just looking at the individual uh, moments, but I thought his, uh, cross was, uh, picture perfect. He did. He had one. He had one cross. Now he did whiff on a couple of other ones, or or hit him along, and, and Yedlin did the same thing. Yeah. Yedlin had, a, I think, one good cross of his own, and and the United States probably should have had another goal on that. Uh, there's sort of a scramble at the top of the box where, mm-hmm. for whatever mm-hmm. reason, it just didn't come off. But uh, you know, again, as you said, it's yeah, okay, fine, and we move forward, and and it's not. January is not, well, January, February is not supposed to teach us a whole lot, Mark, except for maybe a couple of guys who might come out of this. Now, this is a interesting camp because Bradley's there and Altidore's there and Dempsey's there and Jones is there. And, and th- those guys playing in MLS has changed the complexion of this camp. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you definitely saw the class of those players, 
during the game. I mean, they were clearly making it go. I thought, uh, as you said, Bradley had a terrific game. And, uh, you know, it, it's really, uh, are those new guys on the fringes going to be able to get called back? I, I can't for the life of me figure out why you're going to call them Wondolowski. I mean, unless he simply needed another warm body, does anyone think that this guy is going to be having a major role in 2018 or even the summer? I, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't think so. But for whatever reason, Jurgen Klinsmann likes him. And and, and I look, I, I respect Wondolowski. I respect his work rate. I respect, uh, you know, I respect his his bootstraps story. But I don't think he's good enough at this point for this team. And I'm not sure why he's in there either. Yeah. So, anyway, well, happy Monday. Good show as always, and I'll talk to you soon. I appreciate you taking some time. Mark Fishkin from the Seeing Red podcast here on uh, Backheel.com. You can find that there covering the New York Red Bulls and uh, and stories around that team. 347-756-6276. 12 minutes until Jeff Kasuf, and we switch over to the U.S. women's national team. Tell me what you watched this weekend. Now, if you're a U.S. men's national team fan, I'm sure you made time out of your day on Sunday to watch that match. Did you watch... Did you watch La Liga? Did you watch some some Premier League? Uh, certainly caught a little bit of the Premier League, uh, but I did not actually catch the North London Derby. I, apparently, I missed out on that on that one. Spur big day for Spurs, and and you know, look, it's it's still relatively early in the Premier League season. We got a long way to go, and I know this is uh, this is probably a jinx for all the Spurs fans out there. But every year, this is what I know about Arsenal fans. Every year, regardless of where they finish, they always celebrate the day that they are mathematically assured of finishing ahead of Spurs. I think it's like St. Totteringham's Day or something ridiculous like that. It's a conceit, and it's stupid in my personal opinion. But then again, that's what we do as fans. We do stupid things. Is there going to be one of those this year? Is it possible? Is Spurs good enough? They they are a maddeningly, maddeningly inconsistent team. They'll put in a performance like this, and then they'll drop points to somebody like I, I don't know, get, get QPR. I mean, it just won't. It just doesn't ever stick. Maybe Harry Kane will score thirty-five goals. By the way, Harry Kane had three goals uh, before he broke into the lineup for good, starting around November. It has twenty-two goals. Twenty-two. Is this a? It, it, I, I, he's twenty-one years old, and you have to wonder if they, you have to be concerned about it if you're a Spurs fan, whether or not this is going to be a flash in the pan, phenom type run that eventually settles down, and he's not that quite that good. Some guys, sometimes guys hit a run of form that just cannot be explained. I think he's a very good player, and now he's getting England, uh, England buzz as well. David Beckham in the news calling for Harry Kane to be part of the England team, so that'll be. That'll be interesting. Mark mentioned the upcoming schedule for the U.S. men's national team. We we got, look, Chile, 3-2 loss down there. Beat Panama to end the five-game skid. First win in, uh, what, 10? Something like that. Didn't give up any goals in the second half. That's that's some improvement. No issues of, no concerns about fitness after that match. But the uh, spring friendlies. Denmark in Denmark. Switzerland in Switzerland. Mexico at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. I think the ticket sales for that, as reported by Stephen Goff, are something like 65,000. And you know it's going to be a Mexico, a pro-Mexico crowd down there. So that's a challenge. That's a tough, a tough match. 
Those are your spring friendlies. Then they go into June to get ready for the Gold Cup, the Netherlands and Germany in June. But coming up against against Denmark, Switzerland, and Mexico, which will all be two of them definite road games, the third one essentially a hostile crowd, essentially a road game. What do you need to see to feel better about this, to, to go beyond just, yeah, okay, fine. They beat Panama. Yeah, okay, fine. You know how many times they've lost to Panama? Once. They've lost to Panama one time. They weren't going to lose to Panama. I know Panama's head coach, after the match, making some excuses of his own, sounding very much like Jurgen Klinsmann. Our season hasn't started. Our guys aren't fit. Now, that instead of, instead of sort of calling out his players, he just acknowledged the situation, but it's still effectively the same thing. We weren't good enough because we weren't fit enough. And the United States dominated possession, as you would expect them to. It was a little sloppy in the beginning, about 20 minutes, slow, a slow 20 minutes for the U.S. to get up to speed in order to really start to play well enough to win that game. And it was a fair result, as Mark said. Maybe you don't count on an Olympic goal from Michael Bradley. Of, the, of the, all the unlikely goals the United States can score, Michael Bradley scoring directly off a corner is got to be right up there. I mean, you know, beyond like a 70-yard mazy dribbling run by Matt Beasler to score. I think Michael Bradley scoring directly from a corner is 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 <laughs> the most unlikely goal you could possibly expect. And I was as as great as that goal was, as fun as it was to watch, the goal you you focus on and the chances you focus on are the ones that are created in the run of play. And there's a little bit of this back and forth on Twitter as well. Essentially, the United States scored via the same formula that they've always used to be successful. Set piece, counterattack. Set piece from Michael Bradley, counterattack goal from Clint Dempsey on a great run by Jossie Zardes. And the question is out there. Is that good enough? Are we comfortable with the United States still being a team that uses that formula to win? Because there is this notion that in order to progress as a soccer country, in order for the team to progress, become better, they have to learn to play a different way or score goals in a different manner on a regular basis. That it can't just be counterattacking goals. That those are dirty words. There were a couple of people in my timeline. I think, I think Clint, Clint Irwin, goalkeeper for your Colorado Rapids, watching that game yesterday, tweeted, why is it that set piece is a dirty word in American soccer circles these days. I know it's not for Alexi Lawless. But if we took a poll of 100 American soccer fans, how many people would say they would prefer the United States not rely on set pieces? Or that not be a major component of their scoring ability? We want, everybody wants this team to be Barcelona or Spain. That seems like a long, long road. That may not be a, it may not come directly from in the moment coaching and, and tactics and, and everything else that Klinsman has control of right now. That's going to come from a cultural advancement when it comes to the young players we have. Guys, kids growing up with balls at their feet from the very young age of three. Now that, that's happening now. But again, it goes beyond that. 
Do we need we need we need academies that are even close or could possibly compete with European academies like La Masia? How long is that going to take? Honestly, honestly, it's going to take a long time. So in the meantime, do you say, all right, look, we can we can score on set pieces, we can score on counterattack uh, counterattacks, but we're going to stop trying to. I mean, what are you going to do? Stop trying to do that. So every time the United States wins a game like they did yesterday, via that tried and true formula, there's going to be some people who just can't, they they won't acknowledge that that's a good way for this team to win. I'm I'm building a bit of a straw man here, but this this opinion is out there. Clearly, we need to progress as a soccer. I'm just not sure what that means. And if if Jurgen Klinsmann thinks he can change it over, good for him. I've yet to see the fruits of, of his labor on that front. And it's not, again, it's not that I expect more out of his team. But if he's going to talk the game he does, he should be delivering at least in terms of mindset and tactics something that would approach that. Not a regressive attitude when it comes down to games that matter. The United States goes to the Gold Cup. It's it's a different frontier. We see two different teams. We see the team that we saw against Panama yesterday, against teams that are overmatched, against whom the United States has a talent advantage, and we see the United States in the World Cup against Ghana, Germany, Belgium, Portugal, a team that sits back and waits, defends in numbers, counterattacks. We have split personality disorder in our national team. He tried something in, in Chile that didn't work a little too open. Or at least it didn't work in terms of the result. Maybe you were encouraged by the attacking ability of the team in the 3-5-2, which is why it's troubling that it's been dumped already. The chatter out of camp ahead of the Panama game was a lot of players saying, I don't think we're going to go back to that. Jermaine Jones saying, I'm not comfortable. If you don't have the personnel, you shouldn't play. It's also not up to the players to decide whether or not it should stick around. And all that does, that 45-minute period in which Gergen Klinsmann trotted out a 3-5-2, is add add fuel to the fire that is the belief he doesn't really have a plan, that he's just throwing things up against the wall to see what sticks. In my mind, that's troubling from a national team perspective. Let's take a break. When we come back, the women's national team, not going great for them either. Jeff Kasu from Equalizer Soccer will join us to talk about the loss in France and what that means. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, backheel.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning, joined now by Jeff Kasouf of Equalizer Soccer and NBC Sports, various other places. Jeff, how are you, sir? Great, how are you? I'm, I'm well. Uh, the U.S. women lose 2 nothing to France in Lorient yesterday. Uh, the, you know, going into the match, obviously we had the, the Hope Solo suspension. 
uh, which sort of dominated the headline. She's a, obviously a big figure in women's soccer, a big figure in, in culture, American culture in general. But this loss, this 2 nothing loss to France, had nothing to do with Hope Solo or her replacement. Yeah, I think that's, you know, the, the problem for, for the U.S. is that that situation might be the least of their worries right now after this game. Uh, the midfield uh, for the U.S. just completely dominated by France. Um, the only real chances for the United States on Sunday were counterattack opportunities, and even those mainly came in the first half. France adjusted well in-game and, and quickly gobbled those up, and you didn't even see those in the second half. So uh, problems in the midfield, certainly problems in the back, and, and Ashlyn Harris, who filled in for Hope Solo, made a couple of huge saves, and, and all in all, I mean, the two goals, not a whole lot she could do about them, especially the second one. Yeah, certainly, um, while there was some focus there, as as we were talking about before we came on the air, the issues for the United States against France. And let's let's add the context for for anybody who might not be aware of this. France is very very good. I mean, and this was on home soil for them. I'm not saying that it doesn't mean something for the U.S. and that there aren't issues for for Jill Ellis to 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 be worried about. But at the same time, they did lose to a good team. Yeah, I mean, I think France further affirmed that they are uh, one of, if not the favorites for the World Cup title in June and July. Um, France, you look at now in the last four months, has beaten Germany, the top team in the world, has beaten the U.S., who is ranked second in the world, and, and probably, as we saw on Sunday, maybe not even at France's level at this point. Um, France has also beaten Brazil. They've beaten New Zealand and earlier in 2014. Uh, big wins against England, Australia. So France is currently in the world scene the team with the best form right now and germany probably a close second so um you know this could be uh a team that that lifts the world cup title in july uh, for the u.s there there are issues in midfield and, and at fullback what is the what is the approach i mean what 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 can be done between now and and the start of the world cup well i mean that's, that's the problem is is the left back situation in particular has been an issue for, for four years plus now, and it's just something that hasn't, uh, I don't know if it hasn't, if we can say it hasn't been addressed as much as just there's no solution at this point. Um, you know, against France, Megan Klingenberg on the left and, and Lori Kolopny on the right, um, sorry, on the, Kolopny on the right and, uh, and Klingenberg on the other side, um, you know, both exposed on both goals, um, really, I think the biggest problem is for the U.S. in that game, couldn't keep possession at all. France completely dominated possession. And when they did get the ball, the U.S., they, they just lost it right away again. And a lot of that was an inability to play out of the back, an inability to play out of the back on those outsides. So um, what do you do? I mean, I think Allie Krieger is, is part of that answer. She came in in the second half, and that shifted Klingenberg uh, over to the left. And, you know, I think Krieger... Um, at the 2011 World Cup was, was one of the best right backs in the tournament and, and I guess therefore one of the best right backs in the world. Um, you know, she's a different player now four years later, obviously, but I think she's the answer at right back. And then left back, you know, I, I think before France, before this game, I would have probably said, keep on grooming Lori Kolopny. Uh, she was, until she exited in the end of 2008, the best left back in the world probably. Uh, but that's five years ago. And, you know, we saw against France that, that five-year layoff was was probably, um, you know, still kept a few cobwebs around in terms of playing really top competition. So left back continues to be the question, the question and I, I'm not sure that I or um, even Joe Ellis at this point has an answer. 
You, the U.S. doesn't usually lack for, for options at striker. You had the return of Alex Morgan to the team in this game. Um, you obviously have, um, you know, you have weapons there, but in, in terms of the way that they're, uh, that they're playing is the, the issue in, in creating chances, the fact that they got shut out against France, that's that you tie that to the midfield problems. Yeah. I mean, it's a midfield issue. You know, look, it's a lot of, um, there's a lot of talent in the midfield. I mean, Carly Lloyd, Warren Holiday, two of the best midfielders out there, but a, a lot of these issues as well are that, you know, is this the right system and are they in the right uh, role in that system. Lauren Holiday won a league MVP and a league championship as uh, the attacking midfielder in a 3-5-2 for Kansas City, a, a 4-2-3-1, sorry. Um, and, you know, she is the the, the player that, that orchestrates the attack, and she's being asked on this U.S. team to play more of a holding role. She sits deeper. Against France, it was more of a 4-4-2 look, and she was still sitting deeper than she probably should be. And then even more concerning is you know, this, this setup against France took Carly Lloyd, who's probably the best central attacking midfielder and, and even likes to sometimes almost shadow a, a forward, um, and put her out wide left away from the center of the park and, and on a wing role that just doesn't suit her at all. So, um, th- there's a lot of seemingly playing out of position in this midfield and they're yet to really find a combination that works and, and a lot of fans and, and certainly uh, rightfully so, point to the fact that this team hasn't had an actual holding midfielder, so they're trying to shoehorn somebody in there, and, and it's just really forcing it. it. It's in the modern game, men or women, that holding midfield spot is is so crucial. Um, I'm going to go back up to the strikers. I want to get your take on Alex Morgan and her her performance, and then Abi Wambach, who didn't start the game, came on and had a penalty saved. Any any concern over that? I mean, would would if Abby puts that away, does that change the way that we look at this game if the scoreline's 2-1 instead of 2 nothing? No, I don't think so. I mean, that, that penalty, I'm sure you saw, was... I don't know how that was a penalty by any means. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't a foul to begin with, and, and even the, the purported foul from that the referee saw um, actually happened outside the box. So, if anything, I think the, the universe kind of evened things out there with the penalty saved um, on Wambach. Uh, for, for Morgan... You know, I, I thought there's signs of encouragement for her and for the U.S. I'm sure you saw that little viral clip of her uh, nutmegging a French defender. And, and um, you know, there, there were some moments there. She certainly got in behind. I think the, the problem for her on the day was um, she had three or four opportunities in behind the French defense, and her first touch or her run uh, took her away from goal. So it, it kind of cut down her angle and, and didn't allow for the best of shots or the best of angles. But, you know getting in behind, uh, creating opportunities, uh, a few moments of flair there. I think, you know, first game in several months where you have to kind of wonder, second time she had injured that ankle, would there be some hesitance? Um, and I didn't see any of that. So I think that's encouraging for sure. Um, the rest of the play, uh, I would say it's a rare bright spot from Sunday. You know, there's this uh, there's this notion uh, that sometimes for the, for the men, certainly, that um, that losing might actually be, be more beneficial than winning in certain circumstances. I'm not really a fan of the idea, Jeff, but when it comes to the U.S. women and, you know, look, trying to win a, a World Cup that's been eluding them for so long, despite their, their predominance in the, in, the, in the women's game around the world, is there, is there anything to the notion of, a, of an educational loss um, in the longer term, or especially with this summer coming up? 
Well, I think there is something to the idea of an educational loss in very general terms, but what I've been kicking around in my head with this team is that they so often in the past have kind of thrived on the adversity. They they love when they have that little bit of doubt from fans or media or opponents, um, and usually it's kind of a, a minor lingering doubt where, hey, you, know, you kind of got away with this result. I mean, look at the 2011 World Cup where the miracle of all miracles to even get out of the quarterfinals, and, and you see something similar in the semifinals at the Olympics. And um, that this team kind of thrives on that, and, and they use it as motivation, but what we've really seen in this last, I mean, almost this entire year at this point, if you go all the way back to the All-Guard Cup, is there really hasn't actually been a response to this. Usually there's kind of this this statement game or this statement made by this team uh, that shows, hey, you know, we hear you and we're smiling back at you because we just changed things up and, and we righted the ship here. Uh, I'm not sure that we've even seen that. I mean, World Cup qualifying was a lot of lesser opponents. And, you know, these better opponents over these past four months for them, or two months even, really, Brazil, France now, um, and we'll see what happens on Friday against England, there hasn't been a response. Yeah, that's uh, that's what's next for the U.S. women is a match on Friday against England. Um, expectations for that match, how do, you, how do they bounce back, and what kind of changes might you expect from Ellis? Well, I think that for them right now, you know, as much as you don't want to win ugly, I think a win is absolutely key. Um, one win from their last five matches is obviously not any kind of form for this team and, and certainly not form that you want heading into a World Cup or even um, another Algarve Cup where last year obviously was, was an awful seventh-place finish. From Ellis, you know, I think she's going to continue to play with her outside backs. I think Krieger being the answer at right back, like we said, and then a left back. You know, Kelly O'Hara still not getting minutes. Um, maybe she, maybe you look to her um, to, to see what she can give you against England. Um, you know, again, uh, I guess it's worth noting, obviously, uh, Christy Rampone not on the trip, uh, uh, the team's leader and center back. Same thing with Megan Rapino. Sydney LaRue was hurt. Um, and you mentioned Solo. So there were absences, but I, I don't see those as really good excuses for what we saw on Sunday, which, which was a wholesale issue. It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't a particular player where we can say Christy Rampone was missing and you know that was the issue or Megan Rapino. Um so against England, I mean it's I think win is first, really. Uh, even winning ugly just for confidence uh will be key to the US and then obviously trying to settle down that midfield and, and figure out a left back uh, as far as the midfield goes. Um other than Shannon Box, who's now thirty seven years old and, right. and Tori Houston who's uncapped. Um, there's not even a, a holding midfielder in camp right now, really, a uh, natural one anyway. So uh, I'm not sure that that's going to get solved against England as much as it just needs to continue to be figured out because this is clearly the group. I mean, this group's not changing. So um, they have to figure out how this is going to work, and, and Sunday clearly wasn't it. Look, when you have an issue of, of personnel, when you're missing someone like a key holding midfield, you don't have a, a natural uh, player at that position, it's not necessarily on the coach, and yet – we're we're nine months into Jill Ellis being uh, being in charge of this team. I wonder if there's any sort of, I mean, I don't obviously we don't expect her to, to to lose her job or anything to change ahead of the World Cup. But is there a, is there any sense about how she's done so far, especially coming off of the Sermani debacle? Yeah, I mean, I, as far as the team goes, I mean, not much of a sense. I mean, I think that obviously they're going to back their coach. The, the public sense, I think, is that. Um, this team has not moved forward since then. I, I think 
you know, the, the decision to fire Sermani, not so much even to hire Ellis, that, that's obviously what followed, but to fire Sermani, who was brought in uh, specifically to be a guy who both tries to win the 2015 World Cup while developing young talent, and, and obviously doing so, there, there are some risks, there are some games that you might lose because you're playing younger players, uh, things like that. Um, the decision to fire him was a clear all-in on we have to win now. Um, and obviously that's always the case, but you can't ignore development. Um, so that to me was, was the all-in, as I said, um, you know, for, for U.S. soccer. And, and Ellis, since then, um, the group hasn't changed much. A couple of players have come in for, you know, a game or two, a training camp. I mentioned Houston. Ali Long is mainly the player that came in from, from outside of the group that already was. Um, I think they've kind of, this team has kind of stayed the course since Ellis took over, and, and the course, as we saw, was the wrong direction. In, in you, again, the, the Friday match against England, a chance for this team to bounce back, um, whatever, whatever the development is, especially in the midfield, which you've highlighted, we know everything hinges from there. And then at the fullback positions, this is, this England team's no pushover either. I, I, I would imagine, I mean, obviously not on France's level necessarily, but I would imagine that, uh, a loss to England would be taking, taking a little bit more, um, as a warning sign, as alarm bells going off than this loss to France? Yeah, I think it would further it for sure. I mean, the, the alarms, I think, are there from Sunday, but a loss to England on Friday would be, would, would continue some major issues for the U.S. Um, you know, this is an England side that uh, just like the U.S. with a, a different sort of gap in between these games and a lot more time to prepare for it, um, you know, England has these hopes of, I guess much like the men, it's a little bit of an ironic situation of, you know, England thinks that they maybe are better than they are perhaps and they, they feel like they can make 2015 their best World Cup ever. Um, and, you know, they're coming off of an embarrassing loss at Wembley to Germany. Um, Germany won that game 3-0, and I, I mean, it honestly could have been double, if not more. Um, it was a completely dominant performance, and, and it made England, kind of put England back into its place. Um, so they're coming into this game with uh, perhaps a similar motivation as the U.S., who were just really had a game taken to them by France, and um, I, I don't think it's going to be a pushover. Look, U.S. went to England and lost in 2011 World Cup preparation as well, so um, this won't be an easy game for the U.S. And, and again, um, this is the last really quality opponent, at least to this quality, for for a little bit because you don't know what you're going to get in the placement game in in the Algarve Cup. The U.S. drew uh, pretty easily, I would say, the the easiest um, of the groups, or at least avoided a lot of major players in the group stage of the Algarve Cup. So um, this is really one of those final games to actually see where you're at against a team that is at least a quarterfinalist and maybe thinks they're more well the Algarve Cup is interesting it is the goal is to win the the cup I mean when the win the tournament you you identify that they have they they've dodged the heavy hitters in the group stage via the draw but is that is that necessarily what you want if your ultimate goal is to go win a world cup I mean it's a matter of testing yourself against a good competition now they may get there eventually go ahead yeah, and I, I don't know if last year played into that. I don't know. You know, last year they had Japan and Sweden in the group stage, so um, obviously a bit of a polar opposite in terms of that group stage. So maybe 
Um, you know, their goal could have been here. I, I don't know what we worked out with tournament organizers that, hey, um, not looking to have that kind of a group. And obviously, you know, we win that group and we're getting um, either a Japan, a Germany, a France, you know, one of these teams we're going to get in the final then and we'll play them once and see where we're at. But, um, yeah, I mean, the key, uh, the goal should be to continue to get better in as many games as possible. And, you know, you have these Algarve Cup games. Um, you have New Zealand coming to town in April. Um, you know, Mexico again. There's not a ton of great games left to prepare for what's going to be a very hard group stage and obviously a very hard knockout run. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting times for the U.S. women's national team as they, again, lose to France 2 nothing in Lorient yesterday ahead of a game uh, against England on Friday. Jeff Kasu from EqualizerSoccer.com with his insight. Thanks for your time, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines again. Get your thoughts via Twitter. It is Soccer Morning here on Backhill.com. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning. This is your time again. Two chances today. Jump in. 347-756-6276. I know I think I'm like this, I like meta things, like big picture. I'm the guy who spends way too much time thinking about, uh, you know, the philosophy of American soccer and the cultural relevancy of American soccer and, uh, the, the direction that we're headed as a, as a, I, I, I focus way too much on that stuff. But I do like the juxtaposition. I know, big word. I like putting those, the issues that the U.S. women face and the U.S. men face side by side and sort of comparing where they are in the world. Obviously, the U.S. women have long been the dominant women's team in the world. That hasn't translated into World Cup titles. That the Olympics. 99 is obviously a year, a moment we all remember. The U.S. women have long been the dominant team. Now that stems from not only the talent that's available here, but it also stems from the fact that way back when, the U.S. had a culture of girls playing soccer that didn't exist in a lot of places around the world. In England, it was, what was it, like like 60 years ago, it was illegal. It was literally illegal for women to play, to play soccer. Something like that. I mean, it just tells you the cultural issues that other cultures, other countries have had when it comes to women's soccer. So now you've got a, a situation where, okay, all those stupid rules and, and cultural taboos are fading away or gone. And that means that the Germans are playing and the Japanese are playing and the Swedish are playing in Brazil and England and France and everybody else. Because they are part of an innate soccer culture, they've gotten pretty good pretty quickly in a lot of cases. And now that's a challenge to the U.S. women and their predominance. I find that fascinating. The flip side, because the the U.S. men are working in the opposite direction. Having been part of a culture that didn't take soccer very seriously or didn't care at all, and now trying to climb their way up a la- up the ladder while this culture starts to take men playing soccer more seriously. 
just uh, interesting things. 347-756-6276. We're here for you. So give me your thoughts on uh, on the U.S. women losing in France, the U.S. men beating Panama, whatever is on your mind on a Monday. Here's something interesting. I use that word a lot, too. Something, uh, something that points to the issues in world soccer governance. The split between UEFA and FIFA president, Sepp Blatter. Now, obviously, UEFA has their own agenda. They have... A lot of powerful member countries, they have Michelle Platini in charge. They're going to do some things that may not fall directly in line with what FIFA wants, who has a much larger mandate. They got the world to care for, nominally. They're supposed to. So when things like this happen, especially because FIFA is based in Europe, in UEFA's backyard, it should be it's worth noting. The FIFA has watered down a report into reform proposals. German magazine Der Spiegel has reported that criticism of Sepp Blatter by Independent Governance Committee Chairman Mark Piet was removed from his final report by FIFA's legal advisor, Marco Villager. <laughs> the report has led Pedro Pinto, spokesman for UEFA President Michel Platini, to issue a statement criticizing the interference. Seb Blatter's got a challenge for the presidency coming up. I still think he's going to win because I'm just cynical and jaded like that when it comes to FIFA. But for this to happen, for for FIFA to censor, water down, remove criticism of Seb Blatter from a report issued by UEFA, just tells you how petty and ridiculous these people are. I'm, you know, if if somebody, if somebody said, if somebody described all of this behavior without identifying the position of the person being described, if you just said this person had uh, had reports watered down and redacted, he's been known for uh, for corruption or at least supporting a structure that leads to corruption. He has used graft and favors to create a, a support system that keeps him in power. He has willfully directed the voting on various on various issues. You'd think that we were describing a dictator. You would immediately go, oh, that sounds like a, a dictator or or some politician who has seized control of some country via nefarious means or once in power has used nefarious means to hold on to his power. That's a bladder. That's who that guy is. That's who that guy is. And again, 70 whatever years old. Completely inept. A joke. A joke. The man's a joke. Now, he's incredibly crafty in the way he goes about his business. And in another, if he was in, if he was in another area, if he was doing something else, maybe he could use that to constru- for constructive means. Instead, what the man has done is insulated himself against any real criticism. 
seen his organization pass resolutions that keep him in power. Done all of these things while everybody else kind of stands by and goes, we're yelling. This this is like. It's like Seth Blatter is in a movie and we're all yelling at the screen. He can't hear us. Or if he did, he wouldn't care. It's amazing. Let's turn back again. 347-756-6276-347-626. Wait. 347-756-6276. Excuse me. I tried to slow it down and got it wrong. 347-756-6276. Turn back to the U.S. men's national team. Rich says, I'd rather the U.S. men's national team be win now than worrying about development. Well, if you never never focused on development, Rich, will you ever actually make any progress? At some point, you should focus on development. But does that mean you should only focus on development at the youth national team levels? Does that mean you should only focus on development in friendlies? I mean, that, that essentially, that's what we're talking about. Does that mean that we should forget about the results when it comes to Chile or Panama? We can't do that. The problem with friendlies is that it is impossible for us to detach our fandom and wanting that team to win from the game that it's played over 90 minutes like a regular game. If they said this is a scrimmage, here's our televised scrimmage. We're going to play three 30-minute periods. Uh, it'll be liberal substitutions. It's only going to resemble a game in the fact that it's soccer, but we're going to change some things. If they did that, it would be easier for, easier for us to say it doesn't matter. Oh, they created some chances. They scored some goals. It's great. Why even bother keeping score? But this is a wholly contained game that is for all intents and purposes, a real game. It, it resembles a real match, and which includes the notion of managing the game, being a game manager for Jurgen Klinsmann. Yeah, there's six substitutions available. Yeah, the result doesn't mean anything, but we still care. And when the U.S. loses 3-2 to Chile, despite the fact they, they played pretty well in the first half, created chances, scored two goals, we care that they lost 3-2, or that they faded down the stretch. 9-1-8, you're on the air. Hey, I, uh, this is Spencer in Omaha. I uh, missed the beginning of the show, so apologies if you've already talked about this, but I was wondering what your thoughts were on Miguel Ibarra and Jossie Zardes performance yesterday and uh, bright spots for the future or flash in the pan. What do you think? No, I think they're both. I, can, I, think, uh, I, think, I think they, thanks, thanks for the call, Spencer. Appreciate it. I think they both have nice futures ahead of them. I think Jossie Zardes has been, you know, look, this is a kid who, when he came into MLS, remember he went to Cal State Bakersfield. But he was an uh, an LA Galaxy homegrown signing. He made some pretty bodacious statements. He said something like, "My skills going to blow your mind." Now, whether he said that as a joke or off the cuff, or if he was being super cocky, there was some question of whether he could back any of that up, and he didn't for a while. And you had to see Bruce Arena use him on the wing and then switch him back to striker, and he had a breakout year last season. And now he's in the national team. And he's showing me what he can do. And there was a, a little bit of chatter on Twitter. Saw this from our friend Charlie Bohm. You have to give the LA Galaxy staff a lot of credit for advancing Giassi's artist's soccer IQ since he broke into that team. He used to be just a guy with incredible physical tools. A couple of tricks up his sleeve. 
a nice shot, some speed. Lanky. That's what you notice about him. But he has learned how to play. And every time his name comes up, I bring up the fact that the guy had the guy had the opportunity to learn alongside Landon Donovan and Robbie Key. And probably not two better teachers in MLS than those two guys. At least not as a pairing. And it's showing. He he created that goal for Dempsey yesterday by recovering the ball, making a smart run, dragging defenders with him, and making the perfectly timed pass. That bodes well for the future for me. I think he's a guy you're going to look to. Should be in the Gold Cup team. Now, Miguel Ibarra, a little bit different situation in just in the fact that I haven't seen as much of it. You know, what I saw yesterday, I was encouraged by. There's some differences, a difference of opinion in my Twitter feed, my mentions, but I thought he was pretty good. I thought he was certainly dangerous. I thought he stretched the defenders for Panama and created opportunities and more space for other guys on the field. Now, there was a little bit of communication issue with Breck Shea on that side. Breck Shea, if his goal, if, if Breck Shea, part of Breck Shea's job is to get upfield and overlap with Miguel Ibarra, didn't really work that well. A couple of times they managed to create that, that overload. But there, but there were moments when you saw flashes of what Ibarra could do. He's certainly fast. And he works hard defensively. And if you're going to play a winger like him, he needs to be up and down the flank, helping especially a novice left back like Breck Shea. And I thought he did well in that, in that regard. John says, how about Giassi learning alongside Bruce Arena? I just said that. Give Bruce Arena credit. I just said that. You guys are so testy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, Giassi's art is better than Miguel Ibarra, but I was impressed by both of them. I don't know that Ibarra is a guy for the next six months, but he might be a guy for the next year. Could be. Could be. You, it's hard to, you can't teach the speed that he's got. You can't teach his work ethic. Whether or not he has the, the skill. And there were a couple of moments where he had opportunities and didn't make the right decision. But I thought overall, for the most part, he was pretty good. All right. I think it's going to do it for this episode of Soccer Morning here on Backheel.com. Again, thank you to Jeff Kasuf for his insight into the U.S. women's national team. Losing to France, not good. Get a chance for redemption, some in a friendly, against England on Friday. We'll be watching that tomorrow. Another big episode. Hey, go buy this t-shirt. Backheel.com slash store. And go buy this mug. Backheel.com slash store. And then go buy a soccer morning t-shirt at 3NLFC.com. And go to iTunes and rate us and stuff. And we'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Bye. Tell along their corporate